for technology. As much as I complain about social media, even though I spend a lot of time on it, as much as I complain about the way technology gets used sometimes, I'm really thankful for it because it allowed this sermon to be written in a hotel room (laughs) and a Panera (laughs) while I was at the basketball tournament. And so with that in mind, know that this sermon was written during a basketball tournament uh, and that I was listening to punk rock and drinking coffee this morning. So we'll see how this goes. Anyway, it's really good to be with you. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter... Four, Nehemiah chapter 4, that's where we're going to be at today, and we're going to take it um, in chunks this morning. Last week, as we uh, continued through the book of Nehemiah, we covered where Nehemiah had motivated the people and had organized the work to rebuild the walls of the ga- and the gates of Jerusalem that had been torn down and the gates had been burned with fire. He had gotten a group together, he had, he had observed what needed to be done, he had inspected it, and they got the people together and set them out to work. And the, each group of people had a section based on what they could handle and where they lived. And so the work was underway. But the work would face opposition. And today we come to chapter 4 where a guy that we talked about before named Sanballat And his compatriots get worked up about what is going on in Jerusalem, and they decide that they need to do something about it. And as we read the text, I want you to notice the differences in the way that Sanballat and his ilk act and the way they lead versus the way Nehemiah behaves and leads in response to the opposition that they face. But let's begin by reading Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are rebuilding, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. 
So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand it and to apply it to our lives. God, as we come, I'm so thankful for your word that you have given us, that you've revealed yourself in it to us. We don't need anything more, but you've, you've given us what we need to know you. And I just pray that you would help me be clear with my explanation. May you increase and I decrease. Would you be big here, Jesus? This is about you and it's for you, Lord. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. So as we come to the beginning of this, we find that the work to rebuild the walls faces opposition. The work faces opposition. I forgot to mention, I did have some outlines uh, that you guys all should have. If you need one, just throw your hand up in the air. We've got some extras. So uh, anyway, we got one back there. We need one back there. So uh, anyway, I got some outlines that I printed out for you, testing a few things on that to help you guys with, uh, with just following along some things. So Sanballat and the other enemies of the Jews, they plan to take some direct action. They think they can get upon them before they even notice what's coming, right? So they, they decide they're going to take direct action against the workers in Jerusalem. This Sanballat guy, he was toasty. He was angry. Probably because he saw the work going on in Jerusalem as a direct challenge to his authority or his perceived authority, we'll say. He's worried about his position and his reputation, and he expresses it in mockery. How often does our jealousy or our concern for our position come out and get expressed as mockery? He, he's opposed to anyone who would, as we found out earlier in the, in the book, He's opposed to anyone who would seek the welfare of the Jews because he sees their improvement of position as a direct threat to his authority, or as I said, his perceived authority in the area. And in this, we see a comparison. A comparison between the leadership of Sanballat and what we see in Nehemiah. We see a difference between selfish leadership and selfless leadership. And yes, I do have to keep that straight in my head, or I'll say it wrong. The difference between selfish leadership and selfless leadership. First of all, selfish leadership, we see a concern for yourself. He's concerned about himself, his position, his respect among the people, that something's going on that doesn't set right in his mind and he doesn't like it. Because he's concerned about himself, his position, his wants. Then we see that this selfish leadership gets expressed in mockery. He's angry, 
They're doing something that is against what he wants, what benefits him. He expresses it in mockery. Third, you see it, 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 the selfish leadership, he is completely inwardly focused. He has no concern or care for his people. You don't hear him talk about his people. You don't hear him talk about the, the benefits of who he uh, sponsors or who he represents or anything like that. It's all, it, it is turned inward. Selfish leadership is inwardly focused. Fourth, we see a threat of physical harm to anyone who doesn't comply. They want to kill the Jews to stop the work being done because it might oppose any of that inward focus that he's all about. Then we see anger, a rage. That he, is, he is enraged at an assumed slight or someone else's advancement. You can tell you're a selfish leader if you're upset by someone else's advancement or that being a perceived slight on your part. That you're being slighted because someone else is advancing. And the last thing about selfish leadership is it's the opposite of valiant. It's not valiant. When we talk about leaders like Nehemiah, we use the word valiant. When, you, when we talk about someone like Sanballat, this is not valiant leadership. That is to say, it's not Christ-like. So if you, if, you're, if you happen to be a note-taker and you write down, not valiant equal not Christ-like. It's not Christ-like leadership. It's not valiant. So that's selfish leadership, but how does that compare with selfless leadership? Well, whereas the selfish leader has a concern for himself, for his own position... A selfless leader has concern for the improvement and equipping of others and for their good. In Nehemiah, we saw and will see his equipping the people for their benefit, to the walls be rebuilt for their defense and for the glory of God. It doesn't have to do with him, it has to do with others and God. In selfish, selfish leadership, we see an inward focus but in selfless leadership, we see inspiring others towards God. Look at verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. What he says to them. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So a selfless leader instead of being inwardly focused, is outwardly focused on inspiring others, building others up, and directing them towards God. Fourth, a selfless leader is about the defense of the faithful workers, whereas the selfish leader, remember, Sanballat was all about bringing harm. One of them is building up, one of them is tearing down. A selfish leader has rage at someone else's advancement or improvement because they feel a perceived slight to them, to their uh, position, to their character, but a selfless leader responds with love. And love is the opposite of selfish leadership. And then lastly, this one you probably could telegraph. Whereas a selfish leader is not valiant, in other words, not Christ-like, 
in the way he leads, in the way he uh, inspires courage, in the way he sacrifices for his people, a selfless leader is valiant. And we see that in Nehemiah. Is a valiant Christ-like leader who puts himself on the line and inspires others and points them towards the Lord. And we see, here's the thing about these two forms of leadership. Not only do we see these two forms of leadership in Sanballat and his ilk and Nehemiah, but if you look around, we see these two forms of leadership emerge even in churches from time to time. We can lead our families, our churches, whatever it is, selfishly or selflessly. We can lead our lives selfishly and be upset every time somebody else gets something we don't, be jealous, be triggered every time somebody is advanced and see that as a slight to us. Somebody else gets a promotion at work and we feel it like it's a slight to us. Instead of loving and being excited that our coworker did something cool and good and had something good happen to them. Instead of being excited that that, that that this church over here grew by so many people because they had you know they had people come to know Jesus and they baptized and they've been making disciples and they're sending people out on mission and they're planning other churches instead of being excited for 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 that over here selflessly we sit over here and we compare ourselves and we're like oh why can't it and we grumble and we get angry and we feel slighted why can't God do that with me instead of living a selfless life that is Christ-like. One of these leaders will give of himself. That's get my directions messed up. One of these leaders will give of himself for the people. And if it costs him his life, it does, and it's okay. This guy wants to fight to protect his own life, his own uh, position, his name, and his legacy. The other guy says, no, it's for the glory of God. So how's Nehemiah respond? So I think we've painted a pretty clear picture that on one side you've got Sanballat and his dudes. Keep thinking of different words because I said compatriots and I said ilk, okay? Sanballat and his fellows and we got Nehemiah and the Jews who are rebuilding the walls and the gates, the wall and the gates of Jerusalem. So how does Nehemiah respond to this? This is your second main point here if you're taking notes. Is that Nehemiah responds to the opposition that they face in prayer. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Now, it's a little confusing if you're just reading and you're just kind of given a cursory read to chapter 4 and you get to this section because of what comes right before in verse 3 and you're like, wait a second, who's... I think in my notes, I'm like, who said this? <laughs> because it just kind of changes and you're like, who's, who's speaking this? Who's, who's saying this prayer? Well, it's Nehemiah interjecting a prayer in his own voice here. 
in this section. Let's see what he prays. Verses 4 and 5. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Praying to God showed that Nehemiah understood who was really in charge and in control of this building project and who was the only one who could truly protect them from this great threat that they faced. I am sure we know, right? The people heard about this threat and it was discouraging for them. Wouldn't that be discouraging for you? You're there, you're building, you're by your house, you're building on the wall, and you hear that there's some people that want to come in and kill you. That's not exciting, right? That's not, if, you're, if you're mowing your yard, minding your own business one day, doing what you need to do to take care of things, and you get a text message that says, hey, there's some people who are on their way to try and kill you, and they're going to try and catch you while you're listening to your podcast and your headphones and you turn away from the street and don't see them. Like, that's not exciting. I'm sure this threat was discouraging to the people. It was in direct opposition to what the king had allowed, because remember, the king of Persia had allowed Nehemiah to come and be there and do the work of rebuilding. So he had the king's blessing to do this, but this hearing of this opposition is discouraging because the king is about 1,100 miles away in Susa. They're about 1,100 miles away. Now, that's a long way for us, right? If, you, if I said, hey, this thing's happening 1,100 miles away, and I need you to go tell somebody about it there, I mean, that's a, you're going to be driving for a little while, right? Most of us are not going to make that drive in one day, right? So they're about 1,100 miles from Susa, where the king was in his winter residence, and that is somewhere for them around a 55-day journey. So it might take us two days, take them 55 days. So he prays. He prays for deliverance from their enemies. Now this is similar to what we see in prayers for deliverance in the book of Psalms where there's prayers for deliverance from enemies. If you want to see some of those, you can just jot down Psalm 74, Psalm 79. Those are a couple of examples. But Nehemiah prays that what they, his enemies, their enemies, what they wish for them would be revisited back upon them. He prays that they would be thwarted, that they would suffer captivity. Now, This sounds violent to our modern ears, and it is. But what you need to understand here is the motive. Nehemiah's motive in this prayer is not revenge on the bad guys. His motive is to honor God. That is because God is the real subject of their insults, and he is the subject of the purposes that they don't understand. This is not about striking back at someone who has come against you, but it's about God doing justice upon his enemies. And God will do justice upon his enemies still today. Sanballat and Tobiah and anyone with them 
had set themselves up not only as the enemy of the people, but as the very enemies of God whom the people worked on behalf of to honor and glorify. So now you've got Sanballat and Tobiah, and man, surprise for them, you're not coming up against the people. You're setting yourself up as the enemy of God. Nehemiah was praying for justice, for God's justice to be visited upon God's enemies. He prays for God to conquer his enemies. Now, hear me, because I think it's okay for us to pray that God's justice would come upon people. I think that's okay. But God's justice does sometimes lead to repentance. When God's justice is visited upon people, sometimes that will be the thing that leads them to repentance. You ever heard somebody say, I had to get to rock bottom before I looked up to God? That's what we're talking about here. There are some people who hit bottom and look up and realize they're upside down. God's justice does sometimes lead people to repentance. Even people like Sanballat, sometimes. Not today. But Nehemiah leaves that unstated here, of course. Okay, he, I'm not, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that. But we know that God's justice does sometimes lead to people's repentance. James Hamilton Jr. writes this, There is nothing wrong with praying for God to uphold justice against those who oppose his people. Nor is this in conflict with Jesus' instruction, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in Matthew 5. It is not loving to want someone to continue in their evil and avoid God's justice. It is loving to desire that God would deliver someone from his or her evil by means of the revelation of his justice against them. Nehemiah's imprecatory prayer calls for God's justice against Sanballat and Tobiah's wicked opposition to the good purposes of God. God's justice against them may result in their salvation. But if they continue in unrepentant sin, God's justice will result in their damnation. Nehemiah prays that they would not continue unpunished in their unrepentant sin. Important to remember, and that's James Hamilton Jr., by the way. God will pour out justice upon sin. Unless... And that will be visited upon us and our sin unless that justice, that wrath, that, that payment for our sin is poured out upon someone else. Praise the Lord that for those who have repented of their sin and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, he took that justice, that wrath due for our sin upon himself in our place on the cross. And rose again. So Nehemiah responds to this opposition by bathing that sucker in prayer. He bathes it in prayer and then goes back to work. This is key because a lot of times we're like, I got this stuff going on. I'm just going to sit and pray about it. I'm just going to sit and pray about it. And you should sit and pray about it. But then he went to work. He did something about it. Yes, God led, yes. I don't know how many people I've met who've just been praying about something 
for a long time, and that's all that ever comes of it. They never move. And then they grow complacent. Well, I'm just praying, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for God to, I'm waiting. And it's good to wait on God. But there are some times where there are some obvious things that we need to be doing. And you bathe them in prayer and you move. I'm not saying do your own thing and then ask God to bless it. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But Nehemiah bathed it in prayer and then he went back to work. Look at how verse 6 starts. It's so matter of fact. I love it. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Let's not skip over that too fast. He prayed to God. He bathed it. He put his trust in God that God's going to take care of it. And then he picked up the trowel and went back to work. Part of pray for God to work. Pray for God to work and then trust God by starting to work. (laughs) Because if you're going to pray about this thing and pray about this thing, awesome. I think you should pray and pray and pray. But if you never get around to it, then I want to say, do you not trust God to take care of you? Well, what if I do the wrong thing, pastor? Do you not trust that God's big enough to correct you along the way? Just do something. Follow him faithfully. Do it. And as he directs you somewhere else, go the other way. He's not going to send you to hell for trying to follow him. (laughs) But that's how we sometimes live our lives. Like, we're too scared to do anything. Because we're afraid we're going to do the wrong thing for him. Well, if it lines up with scripture, this is the things that God has told us to do in scripture, pray about them, and then trust him and do them. I'm not saying recklessly. I'm not saying haphazardly. I'm saying with full trust in him. So what happens next? This is main point number three, but I think it's going to say two up there when he puts it up. Yep, see, look, I did it wrong. And, uh... What happens is I add points after I've already started, and it doesn't get sometimes translated when I put the slides out anyway. But let's continue reading, because what happens here is the work resumes, right? He said, so we built the wall. We heard about the thing. We were concerned about the thing. He said, don't worry about the thing. Pray about the thing. Let's get back to work. Let's continue reading in verses 15 through 23. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. I want to stop right there. Bethany used to act this out with the kids. She would be in the kitchen when they were little. So my boys were way into Star Wars. And when they were little, we had like seven or nine. We had a lot of lightsabers in our house, okay? I even have one, okay? Because self-defense. And when they were little, she was staying at home. And she would be doing the dishes with one hand. And she had a lightsaber in her other hand, right? And she, that's, she says we were acting out Nehemiah, right? 
as she's working with one hand and defending herself against the boys with the other. Pick it back up in verse 18. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us night and may, by night and may, honor, uh, may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, except uh, each kept his weapon at his right hand. So the enemies of the people of God have this plan, and it gets frustrated. The building of the wall continues, but with half of the workers' attention given to defense. They had prayed, they had trusted God, and they kept their weapons close at hand. Because though they prayed and believed God would deliver them, his deliverance of them might involve them having to cut some heads. They were ready to defend the city and the work should the need arise from an attack. I want you to see what I just said. God often accomplishes his purposes through ordinary human means, okay? The wall was built through ordinary human means. How? People with a trowel putting stones up or however and, you know. And the defense of it should they face an attack, was going to be handled with bows and swords and shields and coats of mail. God will sometimes, in fact, I'll say this, God often will accomplish his purpose through ordinary human means. Here's another example. God planned to bring salvation into the world, to come to earth, and die to save the people from their sins. For Jesus, the Son of God, to come to earth and give his life on the cross in our place for our sins. And to accomplish that, he didn't beam down like Star Trek. He was born. Now, yes, from a virgin, that's an extraordinary thing. But the ordinary thing was the entire pregnancy after that and the birth, right? I don't know if you've thought about it, but we celebrate the manger at Christmas, right? We celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation. He was born where there was animals. Now, I've been at a few childbirths, three. Um, They're not terribly clean things to happen. It's a little messy, I've been around farm animals, also a little messy. There are smells. This was not a sterile, you know, surgical or delivery, labor and delivery room, right? It's outside or in a cave or wherever with animals present. God will use some ordinary human means to accomplish extraordinary purposes.
he works extraordinarily in our ordinary. Now, what does that have to do with Nehemiah, but also what does that have to do with you and me? Well, I explained the part about Nehemiah. They built it and defended it through ordinary human means, trusting in God to work in those means. Here's where it comes to us. The Spirit of God works through the ordinary means of grace to sanctify us and grow us. And these ordinary means of grace are what we're supposed to be about. In other words, as we grow and are sanctified, grow closer to the Lord, become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, how does that happen? What are the means by which God grows us? They're the ordinary means of grace. It's the word, prayer, and the ordinances. So we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. The ordinary means of grace. These are the things that God uses to point us to himself, to grow us. And I love that term, ordinary means of grace, because they are very ordinary things. Is Pastor, are you telling me I should just read my Bible and pray to grow? Yes, I am. Because that's what God prescribed, and we don't want the ordinary. We want, like, bells and whistles, and we want, we want all these, you know, chills and goosebumps and running around and these big, huge things. And God does big, huge things. But he starts with the ordinary means of grace. And I, I'll, I've said this for years now. I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. For most Christians, their life is lived not defending the wall with a sword and seeing the sun stopped in the sky like earlier in the Old Testament and seeing, uh, you know, it be dark when it's not supposed to be dark and all that. Most Christians are to live a life of day in, day out, faithfulness to the Lord, taking part in the ordinary means of grace, the word, study of the word, prayer, being a part of a local church, I would say, as well as connected to that. Because that's where we, that's where we experience the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, where in both we see a picture of the gospel. It points us to Jesus. So what's the posture of the people as they face the opposition and as they continue the work that they've been called to? What is their posture of the people? Because I don't know if you've picked up on this, where I'm going yet. But they were called to do a work for God, in God's honor, to God's glory. We, as the church, are also called to do a work for God, to God's glory, for his honor. And for the good of God's people. What was their position? You're going to love this. It's alliterated. It's prayerful, prepared, and productive. Prayerful, prepared, and productive. I thought about just scrapping the whole thing and making that the whole sermon. Because it's nice alliteration. and People just love it. There are a couple of different ways a leader could lead an army. 
There's a couple of different ways a leader can lead an army. A leader can lead from behind, telling each division where they should go, having a little board with the map, with the thing, and telling them where to go. There's another type of leader who leads from the front of the army, right in the trenches with his fellow warriors. When I thought of this, I thought of a couple of movie illustrations, actually. But I thought of the beginning of the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. I don't know if you've seen it, not necessarily endorsing it, but I really like it. And uh, the beginning of it, the battle's about to start, and he gets on his war charger horse, and he goes, rides up to his people, and he, his, his soldiers, and he gives them this speech. He says, oh, brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity, and I just love that line, right? And he says that. And then they charge down the hill, and guess what? He's right in the front leading the charge, right amongst his people leading them. He's not at the back telling them where to go. He's doing it. The other one I thought of is at the end of The Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. They're at the Black Gates of Mordor. They're about to be overwhelmed. It's a small group of fighters with Aragorn, the rightful king of Gondor. They're trying to give Frodo enough time to destroy the ring in Mount Doom. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just hold on, okay? And then maybe... Maybe, maybe read a book um, at some point or watch a movie. It's, it's good. Um, that's not supposed to be insulting. I was kind of being playful, but it sounded insulting. I didn't mean it that way. And Sauron's army is coming after them. And Aragorn turns and looks at his friends and he says, for Frodo and he turns and charges by himself at this whole army and then everybody else goes with him Nehemiah armed the people they were equipped for work and for defense and this is the work of a pastor for a church my job is to equip you for life and ministry I tried to think of what would be analogous to the sword and the trowel, right? You know, if they're, they've got their trowel, they're working, and they've got their sword, you know, just in case for defense, for attack, if they face an attack. Well, the sword was pretty easy. Harken back to the armor, uh, the, the armor of God passage, the sword being the word of God, Right? And I kept thinking, how do I sort of explain that with defense and what we should be about as we're doing this work? And here's what I came to, that the, the defense, the sword, the word, we can think of that as making sure our doctrine is right, that we believe the right things about the Bible, right? That we read the Bible, we study the Bible, and we understand the things that we need to understand, Okay. And we'll say primary issues right now. We, we won't even get into secondary issues. We'll say primary issues. Particularly, we'll say right now, we'll say the gospel. So the defense and then the work or the trial is our life and ministry. Our making of disciples. So we have, we understand what we believe what the Bible really says, we can defend against anything that comes against that. While we are working to, I'm waxing on and waxing off, I just realized that. While we are, 
while we are living our life and ministry making disciples. And yes, those two definitely come together because you can't do one without the other, or you shouldn't. So what do we, what do we take from this? Well, I want to I kind of close by, by giving you a few things here. The opposition to the rebuilding of the walls prefigures the opposition faced by the church and by Christians. And friends, we face opposition as well. The mockery, the anger, and the jeering of the world, they are coming at us. They will continue to come at us. So what's the form that a mocking of the world takes? Well, comments made about the church and accusations of us being unloving or hateful when we proclaim what is right and wrong according to the word of God. When we proclaim what God says about things in our culture that are really unpopular. When we proclaim the truth about what God says about gender and sexuality and marriage versus what the world is okay with and claims is open and affirming. And we say, no, God determined, God spoke and said it that it is this way, that it is one man, one woman, for life. That's marriage. That anything else outside of that, any sexual relationship outside of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. And, and when we stand for those things, when we stand with that right doctrine, when we stand on the word of God, they will jeer us. When we rightly proclaim that the Lord God is the true God, that there is salvation in no one else except Jesus Christ, the Lord. They will mock us. The mocking comes in person. It comes in culture. It comes in politics. It comes via social media. And against the threats that faced them, the workers were on guard both day and night. So what might we do to be on guard day and night as a church? And what might we have to be on guard from as a church? Because this stuff's coming at us from the world. And it's going to be other stuff than the stuff I just mentioned as examples. There's lots of other stuff. There's been stuff for years. There will be more. There will be people saying, well, the churches." I saw one the other day. Uh, there was some famous pastor, and they said, well, he makes $54 million a year, which I think actually is not true, but that's a whole other thing. I don't like the guy either. But um, he said, he makes this much money, churches ought to be taxed. Well, then somebody else said, you know what? This guy was a small church pastor. He's like, uh, I've never made more than X amount of dollars, and if you tax me, I already pay 15% self-employment tax on it. If you tax the churches more, then... I won't even be able to continue like it was the point. But what's going to come is accusations that we're, we're just, the churches are about money, right? Tell me you've never heard that. No, this, this is about that. The accusations, the mocking, the jeering of the world is going to come. So what will we do to stand up to those things? What might we be on guard about day and night as a church? Well, number one, and I mentioned this, is false teaching. Because as soon as a little false teaching gets into the church, at the bottom it can unrail everything. I've been watching these um, videos online. It's disgusting, kind of. But uh, they're hoof restoration videos. So I started with horses, and I've gone on to cows, because that's just what pops up in my feed online. And these cows will come in, and the, the guy that does the, does the hoof restoration will put them up in the thing, and they'll show the hoof, and... He'll start digging on it and, and, and scraping and everything. And there's a white line defect. And he's like, oh, it's got it's this big pus pocket, right? And he's got it and it's draining it, cleaning it out and everything. And it started because a little 
pebble got in there on that white line and caused that defect. And it started down here, and that's the cause of it, but where they saw it was all the way up here. And the cow couldn't put any weight on it, and it'd come up lame. So what might we be on guard against? False teaching. That's why I want to make sure that the things that I put before you are right and good. And it's why we ask questions of things. It's why I don't, there's some people I just don't recommend that you listen to or watch. Second, I think we need to be on guard day and night about idolatry, selfishness, and greed because that seeps into our lives and we become like Sanballat sometimes without realizing it because we think, well, I'm being selfish for our own good and that doesn't work. And third is mission drift when we drift away from the main mission. The tools are the word, the trowel is making disciples. And I want to show you one final thing. Verse 6 tells us that the people had a mind to work. God gave the people a deep desire to see the work done. And then, then he didn't just give them the, the desire. He gave them the desire to see the work done. And then he sustained that desire during the time when the wall was being built against all opposition. And you might notice that they actually redoubled their efforts to see the wall completed when they were facing discouragement. I want today for that whole thing, this whole thing to be an encouragement to you to not let opposition or discouragement keep you from pressing forward in the work that God has called us to. Have a mind to work at making disciples in your life and us as a church. Trusting that God who gave you the deep desire to see the work done. Some of you are here because you had a deep desire to see God do a work here. It might have been easier to go someplace else, but you had a deep desire to see God do a work here. You've seen God do a work here before. You want to see it again. You have a deep desire. The God who gave you that deep desire to see his work done will sustain you. It's a promise. He'll sustain us through and during that work because without him all of this would be meaningless without God we're just getting together to have a good time and that's a waste without Jesus none of this is possible and everything would be meaningless but thank God Thank God. We have a God who gives us the desire and sustains us in the work. Amen? Would you stand and pray with me? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and then we will sing again together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for the encouragement that we have in you. That though we face discouragement, though we face opposition, and it seems dark at times, that we have a God who is bigger than those who are against us, that we have a God who sustains us through the work, who will be faithful to us, 
that we can walk through whatever storms are in front of us, through whatever we are presently going through, and we can accomplish that which you have called us to accomplish by your strength and your power, by your spirit, Lord God. Help us to know how to pray and when to act, to bathe the work in prayer and to get busy serving you in the ways you have determined. Help us to not overlook the ordinary things of this life in Christ, but to joyfully, obediently, and with hearts of worship, dive in to living every day with you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing together again. Thank you.